And welcome to podcast number 14. Hard to believe, isn't it? Well, it is for me anyway. It's uh, April, middle of April here in, in sunny, <laughs> sunny Florida, sunny, soggy Florida. Actually, we haven't had any rain here except for yesterday. We had a, a couple inches in weeks. It's really dried out. And podcast number 14 will focus on film music from the early, very early 30s through the mid 40s. And this will include three three major composers. Well, four, I don't know, maybe. It depends what you consider major. Uh, mainly Max Steiner and Alfred Newman. And somebody you're familiar with in music of movies, but may not know the name. Uh, Ernest Korngold. And I'll probably throw in some Franz Waxman, too. So the opening there was uh, pretty rousing, wasn't it? Anybody have any idea what that was from? Well... <laughs> the tip-off there is in the end. It was Beauty Killed the Beast. Uh, yeah, it's from King Kong. And I put together uh, from the soundtrack kind of a, a Michael Carter remix of uh, the themes from it. And I'll play that now. It's about uh, 2 minutes, 45 minutes long. It's really great music. It was one of Max... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Max Steiner wrote it. And it was one of uh, Max Steiner's favorite scores. And Max Steiner, you know, from nothing else... Uh, from the music for Gone, Gone with the Wind in 1939, a fantastic score and uh, his most popular piece. So here's uh, here's a little remix I did of the music from King Kong, 1933. <laughs>
Denham. The airplane's got him. Oh, no. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. Yes, Denham, it was beauty that killed the beast, but it was technology that made him dead. Uh, there's a lot of, I, you, could, you could write a thesis on this, I'm sure people have in college, on the themes in uh, King Kong. It's pretty um, classic. Okay, um, what I put together there was the opening part, the opening theme for when Kong comes into the picture, or you, you know Kong's coming into the picture when the boat, if you've seen the movie, the boat reaches the island and the natives are freaking out and ball there is King Kong. Then that was followed by what I call kind of the, the tragic love theme. Tragic because of what he felt for the girl. Tragic because that led to his, his death. And that was followed by his death, the death scene itself. Denham, the guy who had the boat who brought King Kong back to New York to display, making the final uh, pronouncement there and why he was killed and followed by the end credits music. This wasn't the first film score. Uh, it wasn't written until 1933. Oh, by the way, a little trivia. I guess you probably know this, but the Empire State Building in New York was finished, was completed in 1931, and uh, whoopee-doo, let's have Kong climb the Empire State Building and you know fall off it. So that was uh, used as kind of a, a principal uh, what, prop uh, for the movie. Music had been used in movies for what's called underscoring, sort of just background stuff in the back, you know. Underscoring, the term, is the music used underneath all the dialogue and action, and it doesn't stand out on its own like as a separate piece of music. It's unobtrusive and pretty much, unless you're really into listening to film music, unnoticed, but it helps shape the, the feeling, uh, the tone, of the movie as the viewer is watching it. In the last, uh, let's say, four decades, music in movies has is, is, is like gone to excess. It's like the ultimate extreme section of the movie that makes it popular. Uh, Jerry Bruckheimer chase scenes, crash scenes. Uh, it's, it's like the music is right in your face and it's, it's really overdone now. But according to uh, Max Steiner, the general opinion of filmmakers during the time was that film music was a necessary evil and would often slow down production and release of the film after it was filmed. Doesn't that sound alien? I mean, what's a, what's a movie without music? Well, I can tell you from the movies I watch, what you consider offbeat, unseen usually by the public, if it's a good movie and good dialogue and good acting, it's really a pleasant, a pleasant experience. I turn off some movies I'm watching just sometimes because I... The music is so overpowering, it's so ridiculous, because there's nothing going on but shot after shot of, of a car car crashes, somebody climbing stairs, somebody looking scared, somebody chasing down an alleyway. You know, you don't need all that crap. Just get on with the story, which begs the question, why am I doing this series about movie music if I don't like it? Well, 
the music in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s up till a certain point, maybe in the 70s, I don't know, it enhanced the story. It didn't replace the story. So the stuff I'm, I'm presenting here is great music and most of it will be able to stand on its own. And the story that it's used for that you're watching is not overwhelmed by it. I think I made my point there probably several times. So let's get on with uh, Max Steiner. I'm going to read some stuff from the uh, Brigham Young University music site. Some really nice words about Steiner and explains his place in the history of film music. In a sense, every film composer owes a debt to Max Steiner for creating this art form of the movie score. Many call him the father of film music. He started many of the things that we take for granted with music and movies today. There was a time in early film when they weren't sure what to do with, mu with music in the medium and was often relegated to the beginning and end of the film or restricted to moments where an instrument or a radio could be seen on the screen. Steiner thought music could do more, and in collaboration with film producer David Oselznik, uh, that's the guy who made Gone of the Wind, he created the expectations we have today for music as, an, as a dramatic underpinning of the images on the screen. Steiner's work was groundbreaking in creating a link between music and film to elicit emotion in the audience. While King Kong was not Steiner's first score, it remains one of his most beloved and influential. Why is that? It's considered to be the first film score masterpiece and a landmark in the development of film music. It's what they call wall-to-wall -wall music. It's relentless, playing almost the entire film. This is also the first film score that audiences really noticed and acknowledged for its impact on the overall film experience. And this score is different from a lot of Steiner's other scores, such as Gone to the Wind and Casablanca, because he was writing for a creature feature, what they considered a horror film in the 1930s. One of Steiner's real gifts was to match the action and mood of the film with his music. I want to compare the music that what I just read was talking about in the King Kong score with uh, Alfred Newman, who wrote uh, the music for the movie called Street Scene. And the theme I played, uh, I think, at an earlier show, it was just played, however, at the beginning and end of the film. beautiful little theme there but the music for the movie is not something that can stand by itself nor was it written as music for the whole movie it was like plugged in to emphasize certain points or to, to set the mood yeah but it wasn't like as I said before a wall-to-wall -wall score like King Kong was a little bit about Max Steiner's background before he got to King Kong the producer of King Kong was a guy named Marion C Cooper and he asked Steiner to score the film and said he would pay for the orchestra. Steiner took advantage of the offer and used an 80-piece orchestra explaining the film was made for music. According to Steiner, it was the kind of film that allowed you to do anything and everything from weird chords and distances to pretty melodies. 
Steiner additionally scored the wild tribal music, which I didn't play in the, in the, in the cuts, which accompanied the ceremony to sacrifice Anne to Kong. He wrote the score in two weeks, and the music recording cost around $50,000, which today would be close to a million. The film became a landmark of film scoring as it showed the power of music to manipulate audience emotions. Steiner constructed the score on Wagnerian leitmotif principles, which calls for special themes for leading characters and concepts. The theme of the monster is recognizable as a descending three-note chromatic motif. After the death of King Kong, the Kong theme and the Fay Ray theme converge, underlining the Beauty and the Beast type relationship between the characters. The music and the film's finale helped express the tender feelings Kong had for the woman without the film having to explicitly state it. And there is everything you never wanted to know about King Kong music. Didn't want to ask either. Max Steiner was amazing. He, he came from a very musical family. I mean, he, was, he started piano when he was like six years old. He was taking like three piano lessons a week. His godfather was a comp classical composer that people who listen to classical music know very well, named Richard Strauss. One of these days, this is a threat. Uh, I'm going to do a program, a series of programs on classical music. The stuff that you probably like, haven't heard of, but I've really got to do that. And I say that because what I'm going to do right now is, is give a couple examples of classical music that influenced Max Steiner. Uh, one of his influences was Claude W.C., but he was taught by one of his tutors was Gustav Mahler, and uh, Mahler was amazed at this, at this guy's talent. And here's a little more about Max Steiner's early days from the uh, Wikipedia. He enrolled in the Imperial Academy of Music in 1904, where due to his precocious musical talents and private tutoring by Robert Fuchs and Gustav Mahler, he completed a four-year course in only one year, winning himself a gold medal from the Academy and so forth at the age of 15. And as you might have suspected, I'm going to play a little classical music a little bit of uh, composers who influenced him. Um, I said W.C. Well, Mahler was one. Of, Gustav Mahler was one of his teachers, as was Richard Strauss. So I'm going to play first off, and Richard Strauss was his godfather, which would make him maybe 20 years older. I'm just guessing. First, a little Richard Strauss. One theme you will recognize immediately is the uh, opening of the film 2001. And it opens one of Strauss's own pieces called Also Sprach Zarathustra. Also spoke Zarathustra, the philosopher.
I know you recognize that, if not from the movie 2001, which was made in 1968. Actually, it came out the very day. I saw it the very day before I entered the Coast Guard. It's just sort of like a watershed moment. Anyway, uh, it's been used in, uh, I think, probably serial commercials. I mean, it's everywhere, okay? This next piece you won't know, I'm pretty sure. Uh, it's called Ein Heldenleben, which means a hero's life. And I'm playing it for a reason I'll tell you after I play it. Max Steiner's music is powerful, and I want to demonstrate the environment that this guy grew up with and in and was taught by. He doesn't give Richard Strauss, Richard, R-I-C-H-A-R-D, Richard Strauss, not the Waltz King, another guy, uh, credit for influencing him, but uh, the, the power and the dynamism of Richard Strauss definitely shows up in his music as, a, as what I've just played shows. And what about Gustav Mahler, one of his teachers in the early 1900s? Mahler died in 1911 of a heart attack. So this was about uh, seven years prior to that that he was uh, teaching the prodigy Max Steiner at the academy. Pretty dynamic stuff, huh? That was, uh, and that was only Mahler's first symphony. He had eight more to go, plus a couple movements of one. It was the middle of when he died. But this was the environment in Germany when Max Steiner was a young man studying music and full of ideas for his own music. Max Steiner came to Hollywood and worked for Warner Brothers for a long time, and in, when he was 71 years old, he wrote something that might surprise you, that he wrote it, and in 1959.
and not just the theme from a summer place he's credited with the whole score and a terrible realization just hit me I'm at minute uh, 25 and this could be a whole show just about Max Steiner I wanted to cover all kinds of people so this would be the Max Steiner 45 minute show because I'm going to play uh, three or four selections from the late third or middle late 30s and into the 40s so you're stuck with Max Steiner but not just King Kong Max Steiner excelled at music for westerns and uh, the searchers from 1956 I know that's out of our time range but I will play it because we're on Max Steiner evidently uh, 1956 was considered his greatest score before we get into noir stuff which is my favorite uh, we're going to do a little medley here of, uh, of music from his westerns uh, Dodge City the searchers and they died with their boots on
Not bad for a guy from Austria. Okay, we're headed toward uh, an hour here because there's a couple things I have to play. First off, uh, I'm going to play sections of some other non-Western Max Steiner film uh, film scores that he wrote. Uh, Mildred Pierce, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. A little, this oddity, kind of diff really different, called uh, Dark at the Top of the Stairs. And a little, little Women by request from a friend. And then we're going to delve into my favorite, well, my favorite score, besides Gone to the Wind. I'm really tired of Gone to the Wind. It's the, the soundtrack he wrote for the movie Raymond Chandler story, The Big Sleep. And it's an interview I'm using, legally or not, I'm not sure, uh, from a site I found. So let's get started with some short clips from uh, the four movies I mentioned.
Now on to that interview I mentioned from a site on the internet called Noir Talk. Um, It's about uh, probably 10 minutes long, and it concerns Max Steiner's noir music. Usually he's not thought of as a noir composer, more of a Western composer, but um, he did um, The Big Sleep, which is everybody's favorite all-time great number one noir movie with Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, and a host of others. The Raymond Chandler novel is notorious for being really uh, convoluted is overused, but it's it's appropriate here. Uh, they asked Raymond Chandler about something in the story, and he, he couldn't he couldn't remember and he couldn't find it in the book exactly what happened. It's that kind of a movie. He just sat back and enjoy it. So here's the interview. Now let's bring in Max Steiner, who we talked about earlier as being one of the most influential composers in Hollywood, and one of his most famous scores for any movie, and in particular for film noir, is for (laughs) The Big Sleep. Yes, it is. And it's funny, we don't really think of Max Steiner with film noir, uh, in spite of the fact that he scored a number of Warner Brothers crime films, as they were called then. In fact, he, sort of like Rocha, uh, Steiner was stereotyped when he first went over to Warner Brothers as a staff guy in the late 30s. He was sort of typed as the crime composer for movies like Crime School and Angels with Dirty Faces and Each Dawn I Die. And he really was resistant of that type casting and uh, wanted to do other kinds of films. But you listen to a score that he wrote, like The Big Sleep or uh, some, some of the music we'll hear later, and you realize he really was a good choice for these films. He was a great choice for The Big Sleep. He was Howard Hawks' choice as producer-director. And that's because the film is so many things. It is noir as we'd see it now, but it's also a romantic comedy. It's a film that was tailor-made for uh, Bogart and Bacall and their quote-unquote insolent exchanges. That was what Warner Brothers said in writing they wanted to have more of when they did the reshoots, the insolence between them. So Steiner's score really runs the gamut, but it is very cohesive. And um, we're going to hear about a five-minute selection, I think, here. And so what you're about to hear is the main title, which is typically big Warner Brothers music, but it's a great dramatic main title sequence where we see the silhouettes against the title. So it's certainly fitting what we're seeing. And I think that this main title is literally Max Steiner's musical depiction of what the title means, The Big Sleep of Death. And then we're going to hear, uh, after a few seconds, a kind of whimsical, almost comic figure played by Woodwinds, and that's the theme for Marlowe. And it's a theme that is similar to something that Richard Strauss wrote, the great uh, symphonic uh, composer, that, who was actually a mentor to uh, young Max in Vienna. So Max does a little variation on Bogart, because I think Max saw the humor in this film, and he wanted to make sure that that didn't get left out. So that's why you're going to hear this little, little light-sounding figure for uh, for Bogart's character and his influence. And then you're going to hear the theme for Carmen Sternwood, which I think is just great. It's sort of this very exotic, they would have said in the 40s, oriental theme. You'll hear a harp glissando as she falls into Marlowe's arms as he's in the Sternwood house. And uh, the music really evokes the druggy, seductive, languid state that she's in quite wonderfully. And uh, then you're going to hear a a, a waltz, and Steiner was really the waltz king of Hollywood, and the waltz accompanies that early sequence, that unforgettable sequence between Bogart and Dorothy Malone, where he goes into the library and they have a little tete-a-tete, and I think Steiner kind of acknowledges what happens in that time with this beautiful waltz that he writes. And then wrapping it all up is the big love theme that he gives 
for uh, Bogart and Bacall, befitting the relationship that those characters have in the film, if not in the book. And we're going to start this track with a piece that you mentioned earlier, which is the Warner Studio Fanfare, which was heard with yeah. Warner Brothers movies, many of them for many decades. And Max Steiner wrote that fanfare back in the 1930s. So we'll, That's start, right. off, we'll start off the big sleep with that.
I hope you enjoyed that. I did, and I learned an awful lot from it. They did other shows about noir, as you can see from the title of the uh, program called Noir Talk, and uh, I'll pick up some other stuff and pass it along and add to what I've already told you. And now it's time for a couple corrections from uh, a previous show or two. First, in my exuberance to criticize or critique, no, criticize, the 1954 movie version of The Egyptian, in my exuberance I said that Yul Brenner became the pharaoh, and it was actually Victor Mature who became the pharaoh. I was thinking of another movie, probably The Ten Commandments. Secondly, so that's taken care of. Secondly, I did not really spend much time on the earlier score for Napoleon when it was uh, resurrected, restored in uh, 1980-81 by historian Kevin Brownlow. And the music for that was written by Francis Ford Coppola's father, Carmine Coppola, who was a composer in his own right, and you can find him on uh, Amazon uh, Digital Music. Did a lot of stuff. I'm going to read a little about the uh, early restoration from uh, Wikipedia. The film historian Kevin Brownlow conducted a reconstruction of the film in the years leading up to 1980, including the polyvision scenes. Polyvision scenes were, they, they showed it on like three screens. It was a, a, a three-screen production like Cinerama, except it was done in 1927 or 28. Uh, as a boy, Brownlow had purchased two 9.5-millimeter reels of the film from a street market. He was captivated by the cinematic boldness of the short clips, and his research led to a lifelong fascination with the film and a quest to reconstruct it. In 1979, Napoleon was shown to a crowd of hundreds at the Telluride Film Festival in Colorado. The film was presented in full polyvision at the specifically constructed, sorry, specially constructed Abu Gans Open Air Cinema, which is still in use today. Gantz was in the audience until a chilly air drove him indoors, after which he watched the movie from the window of his room in the New Sheridan Hotel. Kevin Brownlow was also in attendance and presented Gantz with a silver medallion. Brownlow's 1980 reconstruction was re-edited and released in the U.S. by American Zoetrope through Universal Pictures with a score by Carmine Coppola performed live at the screenings. The restoration premiered in the U.S. at the Radio City Music Hall in New York City, on 23 to 25 January 81, each performance was shown to a standing room only house. Gantz could not attend because of poor health. At the end of the 24th January screening, a telephone was brought on stage and the audience was told that Gantz was listening on the other end and wished to know what they had brought, pardon me, what they had thought of his film. The audience erupted into an ovation of applause and cheers that lasted several minutes. The acclaim surrounding the film's revival brought Gantz much belated recognition as a master director before his death 11 months later, in November 1981. Okay, some of the music.
And there you have it. Uh, I'm not sure which one I like better, the Coppola or the Carl Davis one. The Coppola version has a lot more uh, uh, more French themes in it. You know, La Mercier, da 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 da. You know, uh, than the uh, Davis one. So it's a toss-up, I guess, whoever you like. In fact, the fact that it was done at all in 1980 and the film was basically rediscovered is, is amazing in itself. Okay, we come to <laughs> a point of decision. How much of Gone with the Wind do I want to play? If you're not aware of it, Max Steiner wrote the music for Gone with the Wind. It's a great, great score. Um, I like... Uh, I mean, how can you like anything better than that? But King Kong is really, really impressive to me. Okay, giving in to the audience anticipation and the crowds holding their breath, waiting for the theme from Terra. Oh my God, here it comes. Okay, here we go. <laughs> I got, I'm playing a little bit of it, just enough to whet your appetite to go to digital music and Amazon and get the whole soundtrack and weep when Melody dies or laugh. The deaths at the end of the movie are just overwhelmingly numerous. So, that's just me, right? Everybody loves going to the wind. Here we go. Welcome to Terra.
when I began this show, which was going to be <laughs> 35, 40 minutes long, Alfred Newman was, you know, the head of my top of my list for, for composers is my favorite. But after reading about Max Steiner and listening to a variety of stuff I hadn't heard before, especially uh, getting into the King Kong and uh, Big Sleep scores, uh, he's on top. In fact, on a scale of 10, Max Steiner's at the top, and then the next one down would be a, like an 8. When you grow up in an environment in an environment like Austria at the beginning of the 20th century, Austria and Germany, and have two great, great composers like Richard Strauss and Gustav Mahler as tutors, you're unapproachable. I mean, unapproachable, not just you're better. No one can come close. So, that's my opinion, and I hope you enjoyed the show, and it's an hour and two minutes and 30 seconds long. <laughs> so, uh, my email, I hope, I'd like to get some feedback from for this show, because I, I think it's really, it's got so much stuff in it. Most of it is not mine, I picked it up, but my email again is gcarter1, mwc, at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from you, and I'll see you next time. Corn uh, Gold, Alfred Newman, and Franz Waxman. How's that? See you then. Thanks for listening. <laughs>